0: You know, as women, especially, I think we're kind of the guardians of our family honor. Our behavior is reflective of how our parents raised us, if we come from a good family, you know, all of these kind of things. So I think it means that we're sort of, a lot of the time, going around the world with a shield where we're pretending to be one thing, but inside we are all of these other things. But I definitely noticed that a lot of my friends growing up, and even me to a certain extent, I was living a double life. We were one thing. with our family, with our friends that we were supposed to kind of have an image for. And then we were another thing entirely in like our private lives. And I think that that dichotomy can be really dangerous. It means that we don't really have anyone to talk to about, you know, things that really matter and, and we can end up in quite dangerous situations because we're kind of left to fend for ourselves and not feel like we have an older person or someone that we can turn to for advice twice.
1: Growing up, I can't tell you how many times I used to hear the words ib, haram, or the most triggering of all, which is what will people say. But in today's episode, you're going to hear what Alia my special guest, has to say about navigating the many facets of her identity as an Arab woman. You're listening to Unsween and Unfilter, the podcast, episode 19 of season 3. It was just last year when I picked up Alia's book, The Greater Freedom, Life as a Middle Eastern Woman Outside the Stereotypes, and I found myself devouring every word of hers. In her book, I had seen myself, my struggles, my identity crisis, and the many obstacles I faced trying to figure out who I truly am. And as soon as I put the book down, I turned on the mic and I started recording with Alia. If you're a longtime listener of the pod, then you already know that I am a daughter of immigrant parents and I was also their firstborn. Basically, my life path was already written for me by my parents, extended family, and members of the community before I was even born. My parents tried their best, and today I truly appreciate their growth more than ever. But that doesn't mean that holding the family's honor on my shoulders was something I could easily forget about and move on from. I never understood why this huge responsibility was placed on us women and never on our male counterparts, until Aaliyah Morrow directly said this in her book. Women hold the burden of their family's honor, and that honor lies between their legs. It's this obsession and constant policing of women that dictates our every move. As an Egyptian-born and London-raised Arab woman, alia shares the struggles she had faced and is still facing as she's trying to figure out who her authentic self truly is. We discuss how in some ways our identities can dictate how we behave, the East versus West mentality, halal dating, juggling different versions of ourselves, and how to deal with rejection. Of course, we all still have our own unique experiences growing up as Arab or Muslim, or as a woman in general. And the obstacles we face as women isn't limited to only our Middle Eastern culture. These issues are also very prominent in Western societies. I hope that we can continue to have these conversations, and for us to continue providing spaces to do so. We all have a voice, and we all have the right to be heard. Let's dive in. Thank you so much Alia for joining me today. I'm really excited to talk about your book The Greater Freedom, which I just finished and I expressed to you how sad I was that it finished. I was like is there a part 2, a part 3? Like I love books like these where it's like authentic stories of Middle Eastern women and you didn't hold back on any particular subject. I really want to get into the topic of discussion of what it means to be technically Muslim, which I love because I felt at times that's who I resonated with. And then I also want to talk about The Invisible Jury. There's just so so much that we can cover. But if you can briefly introduce yourself and then we can get right into it.
0: Thank you so much. Honestly, I can't tell you how much it means to me when someone resonates with the book. It really makes me so happy. I am um, an Egyptian-born, London-raised freelance journalist, and The Greater Freedom is my first book, which came out in 2019. So it's been really exciting a couple of years now, despite, you know, the world.
1: That's incredible. Where did you find the inspiration behind your book? You know, I know in the title it says woman, but I personally believe that everybody should honestly read it. You yeah, no, I agree. I definitely, you know, I definitely think that
0: men should read it as well. And I always really enjoy it when men do read it and give me their feedback, because I feel like, like you said, these are a lot of conversations that we don't generally tend to have as, you know, a culture. Um, and I think that it's really important to show the human side of, of, you know, a lot of things. And that's why I really wanted to kind of put myself in it, because I feel like sometimes it's so much easier to relate or to resonate with something when there's like a a human face to it or when it's like these are my personal experiences and these are the ways that you know ABC have impacted my life. I think it's a lot easier to to resonate. But you know, to answer your question of how, you know, where the inspiration came from, I've been a journalist for like 10 years now, but my identity and you know all of these kind of conversations was never really anything that I kind of spoke about before because, you know, numerous reasons. And I think partly because I kind of had like imposter syndrome about being Arab, even like I was like, oh, well, I'm not the version of Arab that like the world thinks that I should be. So maybe I'm not like maybe I should just not talk about it kind of thing. And then I think as I got a bit older and, you know, more and more people kind of started to speak about their identity and the way that their identity impacted all aspects of their lives. And the more I kind of realized how reductive the story stories were when it came to being Middle Eastern if there was even anything at all because I started writing I think in 2017 and I feel like now there's a lot of things happening you know podcasts music TV shows there's a, there's a lot of a lot of conversation but at the time I didn't feel like there was so I kind of felt like you know I'm a journalist I'm allowed to talk about these things. My parents are going to be supportive. Who am I waiting for? You know, like I kind of felt like I just need to bite the bullet and kind of do it, basically. So that's kind of how it started.
1: Sometimes, honestly, nobody's holding you back but yourself. And I've learned that with age, I've started to, this sounds horrible, but I started to care less about what people think and care about more so what I think. And like you said in the book, and I love the sentence, you're like, these conversations are happening with or without you. Either you add to it or you're just going to remain silent. And I think it's so powerful that you decided to speak up. And this book isn't just from your perspective. You shared so many different perspectives of different women from all the different parts of the world. And I definitely appreciate you for doing that because it was just so interesting because a lot of times, like you said, you had this imposter. Syndrome, because even us as Arab women, we think there's a certain image of what an Arab woman should look like, act like, specifically, even if she's Muslim, too. But I think sometimes, yeah, we even give ourselves these limiting beliefs. So I think that's powerful that there are now more mediums for us to talk and share our stories. There's so many women that it seems like they couldn't wait to just break at the seams and share their stories because now they can see themselves in other women. And that's how I feel. There's something that you brought up, and I thought it was so powerful the idea of our identity kind of almost dictating our behaviors. I've always felt that way, but I've never ever thought of it in that aspect. And I think it's powerful that you actually kind of coined that term in in a way where it's like, yeah, our identities do dictate our behaviors. Can we like elaborate a little bit more on that and what you meant by that? Yeah, I find it really interesting. I think especially when,
0: you know, we grew up in the West. Like I said, I grew up in London and, you know, especially as a teenager, it would be very much like, No, we don't do this. You know, like Mom, can I have a can I sleep over at my friend's house? No, we don't do that. You know, oh, we don't answer back. We don't do all of these things. And it was interesting actually, because when I was writing the book I interviewed my parents. Oh wow. It was very interesting. And I spoke to my mom about that and I said, you know, what do you think identity is? Like is it the limits that we put on ourselves? And she said, yes. I think that there's a very often this kind of idea of like, this is what we do in the East versus like, this is what Western people do. You know, it's very difficult, especially when you grow up in between those things, because I don't think that it's as simple as this is an Eastern behavior and this is a Western behavior at all. There was a study that I cited in the book, which found that Arab women who grew up in the West who had sex before marriage felt less Arab as a result, like as if that kind of took away from from their identities, because that's not something that they were supposed to do. And it's really it's really difficult. Like, that's the last thing that we need is to feel like, oh, we need to kind of subscribe to a certain code of behavior or we're not who we think we are. You know what I mean? Like, it, it's too it's too complicated. Like, we're already kind of navigating this tightrope. So to feel like if I smoke, that means I'm not Arab or whatever it might be is quite quite a head fuck, really.
1: It really is. Because I think a lot of times I struggled with that too. And I think it's also how in which order you identify yourself. Like I first and foremost identify myself as Muslim, then Palestinian, then a woman. And in that order, that's how I make my decisions in life. And so yes, my faith has impacted and influenced a lot of my decisions. A lot of that kind of was, it was almost like my guardrails to make sure that I don't kind of veer off the road that was already paved for me before I was even able to even speak my mind or say what I feel or what I want to do or how I want to live my life. I felt like that was all already dictated. from For me, just being born into those certain identities or claiming those certain identities. Faith also plays a huge role. And I know you touched upon that as well. But, you know, a lot of times we want to see ourselves in Western society. And we don't. We used to see the blonde hair, blue eyed woman in the commercials and the movies and all that stuff. But you took it a step further and you're like, we don't even see our own selves, like a version of yourself in our own community because we keep that shielded. How did you grow up and what did you mean exactly by that? If you can talk a little bit more about that.
0: I feel like there's so much this idea of like we're not supposed to air our dirty laundry and we're kind of supposed to, you know, as women, especially, I think we're kind of the guardians of our family, our family honor. You know, we're so we're so reflective, like our behavior is reflective of how our parents raised us or if we come from a good family you know all of these kind of things so I think it means that we're sort of a lot of the time going around the world with a shield where we're pretending to be one thing but inside we are all of these other things and you know I definitely noticed that growing up I'm very lucky because my parents were always quite liberal you know inverted commas whatever that means and I feel like that's part of the reason why I really wanted to write the book as well because I was like if my parents are so chill in the way that they are. And I still feel all of these kind of, you know, tug rope inside me, then I wonder how other people feel. But I definitely noticed that a lot of my friends growing up, and even me, to a certain extent, I was living a double life, you know, we all were. We were one thing with our family, with our friends that we were supposed to kind of have an image for. And then we were one thing, another thing entirely in like our private lives. And I think that that dichotomy can be really dangerous, you know, for lots of different reasons, not least because it means that we don't really have anyone to talk to about, you know, things that that really matter. And, and we can end up in quite dangerous situations because we're kind of left to, for ourselves, and not feel like we have an older person or someone that we can turn to for advice.
1: Yeah, I, I felt like sometimes we all grew up us women, Arab women that maybe don't fit the typical Muslim woman mold. I felt like, yeah, we didn't grow up with the certain support system. Hence why we felt like we made a lot of mistakes. But I mean, when you grow up, it, you kind of don't regret them, you kind of allow them to be a part of your journey and a part of who you have become. And you did say something along the lines of like, we're always becoming like, there's no end road, like this journey will always continue to go along with or without you. And you have to kind of continue to grow along with it and accept who you are. But it's true like we'll never be the same person we're not even the same person who we were last year you probably have grown so much since you've written your book and that's why I'm hoping that you can write another book but (laughs) you you said something about like and this is something that how I felt as well and and I think that's why I resonated so much with your book I resonated so much with your book because you said something along the lines of women hold the burden of their family's honor and then you went right into like direct mode and you're like that honor lies between their legs and I was like finally somebody said it. Why else would our family's honor lie on our shoulders, lie heavy on our hearts? It's because of that. How did you feel about just like finally just letting that out and just sharing that and saying, this is how I feel. And this is why the burden lies on our shoulders.
0: You know, honestly, I feel like for me, sex and shame around sex has been probably the biggest way in which I felt torn and actually, and I I write this in the book, coming to terms with that is actually what made me want to write the book because I was just like, this is a lot, like this is heavy and I just want to put it down, you know? Again, it comes back to our behavior and this idea that we don't belong to ourselves. Our bodies don't belong to ourselves. They're reflective of how our mother raised us, if our father is a good father, like all of these things. We're not supposed to kind of make our own decisions about our bodies. And I think it's really sad because a lot of the time, you know, these kind of, ultimately it's, it's misogynistic ideas, right? And I feel like very often often, mothers pass it on to their daughters. And it's because of the fear of what the world thinks, right? So it will make you less marriageable. It will mean that no one will want, will like look at you. People will think you're a whore. People will, you know, have all of these negative ideas around about you, which they worry will then impact the kind of rest of your life and the trajectory of your life. Right. And, you know, I always find it really important to stress that this is not limited to Middle Eastern culture at all. In the West as well, there's huge double standards uh, around what men are allowed to do versus what women are allowed to do. And it's again, it's not at all limited to Middle Eastern culture, but I feel like we don't even have these conversations in Middle Eastern culture, right? We're not even allowed to like think about it or talk about it. I never had conversations around sex in my house. Like I never was encouraged to kind of be open about my feelings, you know, and it it sounds like, oh my God, what, how can you even think that you were supposed to, because it's so ingrained in us that these are not conversations that we have. But, you know, and as I write in the book that ended up getting me in a lot of, a lot of quite shitty situations. It's so reductive to limit us as women and our worth to what's happening in between our legs. And it just means that we don't have any understanding about our own desire, that desire is natural, that desire is good, that we're allowed to feel these things, you know, and that has a huge impact on our whole lives after that.
1: I had a discussion with a marriage and family therapist and we talked about that idea. We talked about sexual desires of a woman and it's like, I'm not gonna lie. I was uncomfortable in that conversation because the back of my mind, I was like, I've never said this out loud. That's one thing. Second, it's like, how is a community going to just like, welcome this episode or are they going to shame this episode? And thirdly, I was like, if I'm a practicing Muslim, if I'm a practicing Muslim, my, my faith tells me that a woman has the right to have sexual desires. That's natural. God created us with this. So why does our culture shame, so much how did we lose that translation between what our faith says the rights that our faith has given us to what our culture says and the standards that they've set for us you know my parents honestly tried the best that they could but i still see even in just in our community just how the boys are raised versus how the women are raised we're just raised with all these rules and regulations and shame and this and that and it's just like the guys just they get to live their life a little bit more carefree i'm not i'm not saying that they don't come with their own set of burdens and responsibilities they do but majority Majority of that shame, we have to be honest, the majority of that shame is placed on, on the woman. So I think it's yeah. powerful that you brought that up.
0: Yeah. And I think we, we, you know, we even see that in, you know, there's this whole kind of resurgence of the Me Too movement that's been happening in, in Egypt over the summer where, you know, a lot of girls, young girls came out and they basically said that they had been sexually harassed, that they'd been raped, you know, all of these things, you know, as much as there's kind of been a little bit of, you know, movement towards understand like against victim blaming, a lot of people still were saying, well, why were they there? Why were they dressed like that? You know, and it's a conversation that we've been having around the world of like, don't teach girls, like teach boys not to do that. So I feel like even in that, in that kind of messaging, the burden is placed so much on women that we're supposed to guard ourselves, guard our honor. Don't be there. Don't do that. Versus Teaching a boy no is no, it's not your right to be able to just do whatever you want, you know, and I think that in, again, around the world, but in Middle Eastern communities as well, boys are very much raised to think that they can, that they're entitled to whatever they want.
1: Exactly, that's the right word. Entitlement and the lack of knowledge around an education, around consent. Again, some people like to uh, refer to certain hadiths and certain things and say, well, my religion tells me, no, you completely translated that incorrectly. I think there's a lot of gray area around consent, which that is not something to be played with, but you're absolutely right. I think a lot of times we dissect the woman so much so that she doesn't even come forth. She doesn't even come forward and tell people what act- what she actually went through. Imagine her carrying that, you know? that's why I like I said I'm very grateful for your book and for for these stories because you might not have covered exactly these details but it sparks these conversations and that's what we need more of we're a reflection of our parents from a young age even I remember like that's how my mom raised me when we were little I you had a similar story of how our moms would make sure that we were dressed up to the nines to the T's, like <laughs> making sure our hair was done we had the newest dresses to every wedding and this was us being like three or five years old so it's like that was already ingrained in us when we were really little can you share your story about about like how your mom would do your hair and everything like that. That was so, I was like, that was so cute, so relatable. And I'm like, so triggering at the same time. Honestly, (laughs) my poor hair, like I'm still working. (laughs) Uh, she, yeah, she always. And, you know, again,
0: growing up in London, I was one of very few girls in my class who had curly hair. And, and it's funny because, you, like you said, you know, our parents were just doing the best that they could. And her mom had had done the exact same things to her, which we laugh about now. But, you know, every Sunday she'd kind of like put me down on the floor and kind of just be ri- like tearing yeah. at my. <laughs> hair like with that with the blow dryer just trying to get it as straight as as it could be and I think I was like maybe 11 years old the first time that I did straightening treatment The relaxer yeah and I have to sit there for like six hours with strong chemicals in my hair literally wearing a mask so that I wouldn't be like poisoned by the fumes just so I could have straight hair because that was what was considered more desirable And, you know, I've been really trying to work through this, especially since I wrote the book and I kind of let my hair be natural for a bit and kind of, yeah, I don't really leave it as curly as much as I want to. But then I think it's also kind of been that realization for me that it's about choice. Right. So like if I can have if I want it to be curly sometimes and straight other times, that's totally fine. That's my choice. It's only where it's like, You feel like you have to look like that or you feel really insecure about yourself or, you know, where it's not a choice anymore, basically, and it feels like a compulsion. I think that's where the lines get a bit blurred, but... Yeah, it's been a big learning curve, I think, trying to embrace my natural hair and everything about me, you know, like, I think there's a lot of unlearning that we do as we get older. Like you said, as soon as you're born, you have all these expectations about, you know, who you're supposed to be. And the chapters in my book, as you know, are kind of, you know, when you learn how you're supposed to look, when you learn who you're supposed to be. From a very young age, we're kind of ingrained with all of these ideas. And they're quite, again, they're, they're very heavy. And I think that it takes a long time to unpick them. And I think that's what I really wanted to do with the book was just kind of provide a framework through which people could sort of, or even for, honestly, it was a very selfish endeavor. Like a lot of it was so I could unpick it for myself, but so that we even begin to have these conversations because again, it's about choice, right? So if that's what you want to do, that's what you believe. That's totally fine. That's completely your prerogative. I think it's just where it's, not your choice. And it's just the only way that you think you can be or look or feel or behave. I think that's where it's, it's really quite stifling.
1: You know, Ali, the unlearning process is hard. A lot of people talk about it. I've said it and everything like that. But for us just being first generation, it's difficult. It's hard. Like it's easier for me to say, oh, I'm unlearning and learning and unlearning. But it's no, but it's like a majority of my life was me learning things that I didn't want to learn in my gut instinct. I felt wasn't right. Like I wasn't living my truth. So here I am struggling to learn things that I didn't want to learn. And then now you're telling me that I have to unlearn these things and then learn about my authentic self everybody can talk about. About it, like as if it's simple, and I'm glad that you were able to bring this up and mention it in your book. But it, it's really, really not easy. And then choice. When did I finally decide that I can make my own choices? I swear to you, it was probably like two years ago. I think when I turned 30, literally, that's when. At the age of 30, imagine living 30 years of your life where all of your choices were made for you. And it's a struggle because it's like, you want to sometimes, like you don't want to be seen. You don't want to be the one, the one outlier, the one where the community is looking at you like, oh, look at her, she's being a rebel. You also don't want to disrespect your parents because this is all that they know. And then, but at the same time, it's like, but I need to make my own choices. And when can I do that? When did you feel like you can make your own choices? How is that process for you? I mean, obviously we know how liberating it is. And we're going to talk about that in a bit, how powerful it is to live in your truth. But when did you finally decide like, or realize that, that you are making your own choices because sometimes we don't even realize that we finally progress to that part of our journey. I think
0: there's definitely some ways in which I feel like, yeah, I am making my own choices. But I started therapy a couple of months ago, and what's been really interesting in that is I feel like part of me kind of feels like, wait, am I doing like I feel like there's some ways that I think or some ways that I feel that I'm almost like, is this revenge? Like, is this. Out of revenge? Like, do I uh, not revenge against anyone in particular, but revenge against the expectations where I'm like, is this my choice or am I doing it or feeling it or whatever in opposition? Because that's still not my choice, right? That's still in reaction to something else. So I think that's kind of what I'm trying to figure out at the moment is like, what is it? Because like, for example, I'm like, I don't know if I ever want to get married. I don't, I'm don't. i 31 now. I'm like, I don't really know if I believe in marriage. I'm not really sure if I want to have kids. Do I really think that or am I just thinking that I think that? because I'm supposed to want those things.
1: That's exactly what I'm at, Alia. because we can say, oh, I'm trying to get to the point where I'm my authentic self, but sometimes you still feel like, wait, is this my authentic self or are my choices still being micro influenced by my life? How are you going to remove 30 years of your life of all this unlearning and still not expect it to somehow influence who you are? So I'm on the same road as you. I'm seeking therapy as well. And I'm at that point in my life where it's like, how am I ever going to know that I'm living my authentic truth if I'm still surrounded by the people who have dictated my choices if I still feel like not that I'm a people pleaser but I still want to please others and I don't want to get them mad but at the same time it's like I feel like I finally reached an age where it's like you can't tell me no and you can't tell me yes I'm going I'm going to do what I want to do but yeah the idea of marriage I it's just such a gray and fuzzy area for me because am I making these choices for myself or no
0: I'm writing an article about about this at the moment because I kind of feel like as women, so much of the kind of emotional labor, so much of the burden is, is placed on us. So, you know, there's there's these stats that I came across, which found that like married men live longer and are much happier than unmarried men, whereas unmarried women are much happier than married women. obviously, this is a generalization. It's quite interesting because I think, again, perhaps as first generation, perhaps we're not really taught to have strong boundaries, I think. We're very people pleasing. I'm such a people pleaser. So as soon as I'm in a relationship, I'm so giving like to the detriment of myself. The expectation is on you to kind of like, oh, it's your mom's birthday. Like, let's send her a card. Like, why can't you remember your own mom's birthday, dude? You know, like everything (laughs) is like on us, like raising the kids, like we're left to like shoulder all that burden. And I think as someone who's very ambitious in terms of like what I want to do with my career and all the stories that I want to tell and all the work that I want to do, I have this fear of like, oh, well, I wouldn't be able to do both of those things unless I find a phenomenal man who's like super feminist as well, and is more than happy to kind of actually be an equal partner with me. Anyway, that's like a whole other conversation for my therapist, probably.
1: <laughs> we can go hours about that. I think that's why I honestly seek therapy in itself. What about like the false narratives of others? I think that's something that always paralyzes me with fear, again, because it goes back to how the woman holds all the burden of the family's honor. So a lot of times I struggled with the concept of allowing literally the false narratives, not even true stories about people what they held against me but it's just like these false stories that people can hold against you on the tip of their tongues and they can't wait to just share with others have you ever dealt with that because I think for me living in Chicago living in a small like suburb and whatnot everybody knows everybody and everybody knows everybody's stories but then majority of those stories are also false stories so I started to literally not even believe anything if I've heard certain things about me that I know are just wild and not even true why would I ever believe any other story about any other woman you know
0: well, I, I called this like the invisible jury in my book, which is the idea of like there being this kind of jury of people who are judging you and kind of making decisions about who you are and sort of gossiping to each other about it. And that's anyone, right? Like in the Middle East, everyone has, you know, people who work in their houses or like the, the porter, like the beweb guy, the Be web has so many opinions about like, what time are you coming home? What time are you going out? What are you wearing? And I feel like for me, I'm very lucky because my dad never cared about what these people thought i don't know like i think we kind of managed i managed to tune them out i know my mom definitely cared but i feel like it's also one of those things and and i've had this conversation with my parents numerous times of if i was raised in egypt those people's opinions would matter much more and they my dad has said that to me explicitly if you were raised there you would have been expected and i would have raised you differently than if you were raised in London the way that you were. So I feel like it is really difficult. But at the end of the day, all of this kind of jurying and judging is just a way to police people. And it's just a way to kind of ensure that they stay within what are considered the sort of acceptable realms. And I think as I've gotten older, I've really started to think like, why? Why do people do that? Why the impetus on policing in this way? And I think It's out of fear and I think it's out of jealousy, to be honest, because it's like, well, I wasn't able to do those things. I have to follow these rules. The world tells me that I'm going to live a better life because I've abided by this. So you should be doing the same thing. And, you know, I think what's been really interesting for me is I've had a lot of conversations off the back of the book, even with my mom and her friends and like my grandparents, age friends and all of that. And so many women, and I was so scared. Like I did this event for my mom and her friends, literally, I think there was like 20 women or 30 women who were like 50, 60. And I was petrified. Like I was like, cool. So I'm basically going to sit with the invisible jury and have a chat with them. It was so scary, but it was so interesting because I think what I really realized off the back of that is that they all have their own invisible juries and they all have their own kind of things that they've been told they needed to abide by again it's out of fear it's out of like i want you to live a good life and this is how i've been told one lives a good life so if you stray out of those bounds you're not going to have a good life kind of thing and again i think this is why we need more stories this is why we need to be more honest this is why People need to come forward and talk about all of their truths because the reality is there's lots of different ways of having a good life.
1: There is. You brought a good point because it's like, yeah, when I look at my parents, they had their own set of invisible jury, just like your, you said. It's their own siblings, their own extended like family and their own cousins. And my dad was just like your daddy. I used to say he was Americanized and I hate that word, to be honest. It's more so he was just open-minded, just like you said. There's nothing about being Americanized because literally my dad followed our faith. You do what you want to do. Just don't compromise your faith in the process and try your best to be as good as possible to other people. And that's how my dad honestly raised us. But at points he would be compromised by his extended family and it was me the first one to go to college it was me the first one to hold a job to be independent like they couldn't fathom the idea of my dad allowing me to have my own thoughts my own freedoms my own paycheck and somebody once told them they're like the more you give her freedom the less she's going to want to desire a man and and settle down in a way that kind of almost scared my dad because yes like you said my dad felt like okay maybe yeah like that is a way to live a good life is to one day have a family and I want that for my daughter am I ruining her future so my dad almost had to Himself and how he raised us. My mom, she was already sucked in that world of being traditional and don't blame her. It took a while for me to like kind of dissolve that resentment and understand that my parents are people too, that as I'm growing and I'm learning and I'm looking at my past mistakes, they're allowed to do the same. Why am I not giving them that same compassion to be able to also grow and learn and understand? But of course, that doesn't take away from the trauma that we face growing up, you know, at, at certain times because of our community. You brought up the point of East versus West. Versus right versus wrong, and I was like shaking. I was like, "Oh my God, idea Like I've never heard anybody say it in that aspect because I was like, "That is so true." There is a lot of things like going to the movies with my friends is not haram. There is absolutely nothing wrong with that. Yet it was made to be haram. It was made to be wrong. And like you said, it was more so that East versus West mentality. That's what our parents, our extended family cared more so about. They wanted to make sure that we stay closer to our culture and our faith versus the other side of the culture, which is being American. Again. We we were born into the society and they were not. So they tried their best to kind of hold us as close as possible to them and to our faith and to our culture. But that was a struggle that we never asked for, but we had to take, take on. And it made it more difficult when our parents kind of gave us these false flags of what's haram, what's right, what's wrong. And I think it's such an important distinction to make. And I think it's
0: been conflated so much culture versus religion. You know, so many, you know, as you've spoken about throughout, like religion in so many ways, like is much more Open culture is. And it's kind of like it's been conflated to be, you know, everything is haram and don't do this and don't do that. And I think, you know, as I touched on in the book, I think that's really doing the religion such a disservice because a lot of people then kind of turn away from it or try to find their own ways or. Because they're like, oh, well, no, I don't want to be I don't want to be part of this that tells me I can't be myself or I don't want to be part of this that means that I I can't be authentic or whatever. So on and so forth kind of thing when you know that's not the case. That doesn't need to be the case. And again, it's culture, I think, that is a lot more reductive. I don't know what it is. I wonder if it's like they've moved away to countries where, you know, they don't know well. So they're kind of trying to like hold on as much as possible to what they think it means to be Egyptian or Palestinian or whatever it might be. And and that's how it comes out. But, you know, and, and again, I touched on this in the book, but in the same way that there are so many negative stereotypes about what it means to be Middle Eastern. There's a lot of negative stereotypes about what it means to be Western. You know, this idea that like, oh, you're naked in the street, like drunk or whatever, like that's not, okay, fine, that exists. Same way that some negative stereotypes about Muslims or Middle Eastern people exist, you know, but to say, to generalize and to say, oh, well, everyone is the same and that's how it is. So no, you're not allowed to like go hang out with your white friend because you're going to become some psycho in the street is is really reductive and and also unfair because I live here like this is where I've grown up what am I supposed to
1: do yeah we have these dual identities and it's like you're trying to navigate this journey and it's like yeah majority of the time when I was younger I navigated more so towards people that look like me that share the same faith as me because it meant I there was less to have to explain to my parents when I wanted to hang out with these people but it's just like I felt or like I was friend. Yeah, exactly to my friends for sure. Like that was something I did not want to explain at all because they would never understand. But it's just I felt like I was a little bit robbed of certain experiences because it's like, yeah, I didn't get to have a diversified friend group. I only stuck to people that look like me and share the same similar struggles as me, but it's like as you grow older, as you go to college, then you get to experience the actual real world. And and that's how I felt. I felt like for once I got to see the world from my lens and yes, at times it was just like, Whoa, what what is all this? What is this world because i was shielded away from this world for so so long dating was another aspect that was very difficult and i think that's because again back to the family honor if I felt like it was okay for our male counterparts to, you know, even if they were to get caught, let's just, it's not that they're going out and out in the open saying I've dated this many girls or anything like that. But even if they were to get caught, they were not going to be reprimanded or scolded or anything. I want to talk about just dating from the experience of, of a Muslim woman or an Arab woman, just in general, just an Arab woman, how difficult it is. Because I mean, imagine us not being be- being able to even hang out with friends. All the questions we're bombarded with when we leave the house. And then when we come back into the house, imagine actually trying to get to know somebody from the opposite sex in itself. It's difficult. And it's like, I understand. I understand we have to do it the right way and we have to make sure that we follow our faith and we we don't do anything wrong. But at the same time, it's like, you know, there's a lot of acts that are actually halal, but we've shamed and made haram. Even just like there's a lot of women who have difficulty when they do get married and they have to consummate their marriage. They don't even know, not that they don't even know how, but they just tense up and they get so nervous because of the idea of this was a, a shameful. Act all of my life, and all of a sudden, now overnight, it has become halal. Just even dating, like the whole idea of talking to a guy, like this has been shameful all of my life, but now I'm spending the rest of my life with this person. And you hope to God that it's not a stranger and it's somebody that you actually kind of got to know to a certain degree because you don't want to start a life with somebody that you don't know anything about. No,
0: and I think that's you know one whole side of it, and then I think there's a whole other side of like there's this checklist that we're supposed to have in a partner. And I think that's been my biggest struggle because I've been dating for a number of years. I've had a number of long-term boyfriends. Uh, My parents have met them. Like, again, there there was never that much an issue for me. I think what's more been my struggle is this idea of who I'm supposed to be with, right? And growing up in London, there's so many different people of all different, you know, nationalities and all different socioeconomic backgrounds and all of this stuff. But as an Arab woman, I'm supposed to ideally marry someone who comes from the same country as me if not at least you know also being Arab they're supposed to be Muslim they're supposed to be well off or you know have a certain amount of money in order to like look after me in inverted commas (sighs) they're supposed to you know be all of these things and I think that's really what's been my struggle because I don't necessarily want that I don't necessarily need that actually for me to have as a life partner but I had my so my ex-boyfriend of five years my longest term relationship he was from Ghana he was Christian he was a music artist so all like none of the checklists that community would have wanted and he was a, he was a lovely guy and then when we broke up something kind of went in my mind and I think it was around the same time I was writing the book so I was kind of like oh well maybe I'm supposed to be with an Arab guy like let me you know let me look into that kind of thing. And the last few years have been me sort of look like paying much more attention to that kind of checklist of what I'm supposed to have and what I'm supposed to want. And it's not really working out for me. Like, that's not, you know, that's not necessarily what I want. And not to say that there aren't, you know, amazing Arab men. Of course there are. But, you know, even to go back to what I was saying earlier, of like they need to be super feminist. That's like, I'm really limiting my options if I'm looking at one specific ethnicity, and I think that, again, has been my biggest challenge where I'm like, in the back of my mind, those are the things that I think that I'm supposed to want. But actually, the things that are more important, like kindness, you know, shared values, shared beliefs, and, and whichever, whatever that means, those are not things that I've been prioritizing. So I think I'm starting to come to this conclusion where I'm like,
1: I need to make my own checklist exactly I, th- I think yeah that's something I struggled with like the checklist of others versus the standards that I want to hold versus the small pool of guys that kind of don't meet those standards but me not wanting to compromise on those standards either most of our lives we've compromised so much and sacrificed so much and I think this is something that it's just an important chapter of my life when it comes to marriage and that's something that I really really for the first time in my life I don't want to compromise like I, I really don't want to and I want to make sure that I go into this with the right person that I feel 100% like myself and that is gonna and that this this person is going to support me in my journey and not hinder me. They're going to allow themselves to stand by my side while I'm growing. I don't need somebody to dictate me. I'm not trying to do a transfer of like from my parents telling me how to live my life to this person telling me how to live my life. That's not how you're living your life. You know, I think all of us are now sharing our stories a little bit more openly. And you said something about like, is it because the eye of judgment is less severe? Or do we as women just don't care anymore? And we're finally taking back ownership of who we are, ownership of our bodies, of our stories, of our choices, and everything in between. Because I think. I think there's actually three things I'm juggling with my authentic self part of yourself that's marriageable that you don't want to compromise and then the part of you that's also trying to do good and live your life and be faithful and practice your faith as much as you can like there's a lot of identities or parts of me that I am juggling that I it's very difficult for me to be able to like wake up one day and realize like who am I like who am I trying to be so I think that's that's something I'm struggling with but it's like I'm wondering like it's it's beautiful to finally hear the voices of women for the first time and for them to be who they want to be and say their stories openly. So is it because we finally reached that breaking point? Or is it because I think the society is finally understanding like, damn, like we've done these women wrong. I guess it's a bit of a chicken or an egg situation. And I I remember I was doing a I did a talk like the other week
0: and someone said someone asked me like, oh, well, do you think that the laws you know, especially in the Middle East, I guess, do do the laws need to kind of facilitate these changes? And what I think is that societal change needs to come first, because otherwise the laws are pointless, right? So I feel like it's kind of, yeah, I don't know, I think there's like an awakening happening. And I think social media definitely helps You know, being able to to kind of connect with people of shared beliefs and shared morals and shared identities from all over the world, who are living lives in their lives in all sorts of different ways, and you know, people who are completely different to us and to the small echo chambers that we've grown up with, and to the ideas that we've been raised to believe are right versus wrong or whatever. The whole world is our oyster now. We see everything. So I think it's so much easier to be able to think about what are the things that I want? How can I authentically be myself? Because at the end of the day, these are the most important questions. Like, I don't think that we can live a good life if we're not being true to ourselves, whatever that looks like, right? And I think that in doing that, we're connecting more and more with other people. And sort of, there's a saying that I always come back to, which is it's easier to be yourself if you can see yourself. And I think that the more other people are themselves, the more it facilitates us to be ourselves too. And I also think that I wonder if it's kind of in backlash in a way to, again, the reductive ideas of what it's supposed to mean to be a Middle Eastern woman, right? Like, or a Middle Eastern or a Muslim. After 9-11, you know, especially living in the West, I think we've all felt that impact of very reductive ideas. And I think, you know, it's been what 20 years since then. So our generation who were kids when it happened. So as we grow up and we start to find our voices, those reductive narratives have had an impact on us, right? So we're like, no, I'm not those things. I'm this and that and that and that. And we're kind of taking a stance to like say that. And I think it's been really great to see, like I started, like I said at the beginning, like, you know, Rami has done been doing so well, the show. There's so many amazing books and podcasts and music artists and comedians. And like, I feel like we're really having kind of this Arab cultural awakening. And I think in part that is in response to to this feeling of, okay, well, I need to tell my own story because the one that's out there is shit. And in doing that, it kind of gives us all permission to see all these different ways of being and gives us courage and the strength and ability to be more honest about what we want for ourselves.
1: I have a question for you, Aya. Do you feel, what was more liberating for you to live your truth, to start your journey of living your truth? Or to share your truth publicly. Because for us to share our truth publicly, that's that's a huge step. I mean, it's enough that we're kind of trying to reconcile with it behind closed doors, but imagine us actually finally being able to share our truth out in the open. And I'm I've been slowly trying to do that, kind of testing the waters. And it's it's almost kind of, yeah, a, a bit liberating to be able to do that. But I was wondering in your personal opinion, and you don't have to choose one or the other, it could be both, but what was more liberating for you to live your live your truth or to share your truth publicly with others? woman and the world? Uh, That's a
0: very good question. And I think that, you know, as a writer, I've always written to figure out how I feel and who I am and what I want and my place in the world and, you know, all of all of the above. So I feel like perhaps to answer your question, I didn't start living or really knowing what my truth was until I began the process of writing the book and then putting it out there and having so many people resonate with it and send me messages and, you know, share their stories and all of that kind of stuff. I think that I can't separate them because it was only in the writing and in the sharing that I realized or I'm realizing, because as we said, we we always keep changing and we keep growing, what my truth is.
1: That is such a beautiful response because that's so true. It's it's they're not mutually exclusive. You need both of them, I guess, to kind of feed one another and to become who you really truly want to be. And like you said, we're always becoming. Just you being a journalist, a writer, just a badass woman overall. Obviously, you had to overcome some obstacles, some humps, and I think all of us have tasted rejection at one point of our lives. And I think you're very inspirational, so I feel like a lot of women would benefit from this piece of advice. But how do you handle rejection in whatever aspect of your life? It could be from your personal friendships, to professional developments anything how do you handle rejection and how do you stay motivated sometimes we kind of have to be our own like cheerleader and it could be difficult to be a, like a one-woman team but we get it done and you get you definitely got it done
0: thank you for saying that honestly because my imposter syndrome likes to chill on my shoulder so that's like really nice to hear but a hundred percent i'm rejected every single day every single day like especially as you know a self-employed person a freelance journalist like so much of how I get any work done is I have to come up with the idea I have to find out who the editor is or whatever I have to like pitch it into the world I have to chase and then most of the time like most of the time no joke people say no for whatever reason and then you're like okay where else can I send this how can I improve this in order to maybe get a yes next time with my book I had to send it out to like I don't know my proposal I think I sent to like maybe 20 or 30 pop like agents most of them didn't even answer me you know so there's very much there it's like I said imposter syndrome likes to chill and you kind of have to be like no no it's okay I'm gonna keep going I'm gonna keep trying and I'm not really sure where that strength comes from I think it's in trusting in the importance Of stories. And I think, you know, when, you know, like you reaching out to me and highlighted parts of my book and I could see what was resonating with you, you know, you inviting me onto your podcast, like all of these kind of things, I think give me the strength to keep going because I'm like, it's not about, you know, getting yes every single time. That's not the point. It's about the yeses facilitating your story to resonate with someone. And that's what matters. I interviewed this amazing storyteller for a profile which is coming out soon, which I'm really excited about. And I was kind of speaking to her about this and she was basically saying, that her mentor had given her this advice of, you know, you need to focus on the minimum, minimal viable audience. So it's not about having 100 million people. That's not the point. If it resonates with a handful of people, and it makes their lives better in some way, then that's really what matters. And that's very much what I've been focusing on.
1: Exactly, Aya, because it honestly, like, it creates a ripple effect. The amount of women that you've touched, they are going to continue sharing your story alongside their story and it's just gonna continue to keep going and going and going. And sometimes, yeah, you don't need to hit the 100 million people all at once. It's going to get there on its own. You put your work out there, you put your story out there, you've done the work and it's going to grow through the voices and the stories of other women. And I think it's just so beautiful. And that's why I'm saying like, I need more books of books like yours on my shelf. I need more stories like The Greater Free. Freedom on my shelf. I need to see more of these stories. For somebody like me who has finally come into her own skin and finally feels confident, I often wonder, like, what about the women that are still on that painful journey that are still trying to find their voice? So that's why we need more of these stories to guide those women and, and let them know that they have their own voice. Nobody needs to speak on your behalf. You're powerful. You're validated. Everything that you've gone through. I, I can't thank you enough. I want to end this on with talking about your newsletter because, you know, I expressed to you how sad I was when your book finished, but then you're like, I have a newsletter. And I'm like, oh my God, I love that. <laughs> and I love these idea the idea of newsletters. I think they're incredible. But can you talk about yours, how people can find it, how they can subscribe? to it? And maybe again, what inspired you to have a newsletter? So
0: the newsletter is called The Greater Conversation. um, And it was essentially a way to Continue the conversation that, you know, was in the greater freedom. I started it in March. So I think it was March or April. So, like, peak beginning of lockdown. You know, I had just been receiving and I still receive the most amazing messages from women all the time who have read my book, who have resonated with it, who are kind of like telling me their life story in my DMs. And I'm like, oh my God, I really want to kind of have a platform where I can sort of pass the mic and you can tell your story and we can, again, feel seen. And and empowered by each other's life experiences so the newsletter comes out every week and like there'll be like an there's an intro from me about, you know, something that's on my mind that week. And then there's a guest piece from a different Middle Eastern woman every week. Um, and that's either anonymous if they prefer to be anonymous or, you know, with their names and then like some of the books and some of the articles and things that I've kind of been engaging with that week. But it's really just about, yeah, again, like just having these conversations, providing a space, a safe space where we can have them and where we can feel seen ultimately because I think that there's nothing more powerful than that you know if we feel seen we feel like we can be ourselves and then that like you said has a ripple effect it makes someone else feel like that and then it makes someone else feel like that and we all kind of empower each other that's really what I want to do I think just kind of keep providing space to have these conversations and be really honest about them. Because at the end of the day, there's nothing, there's nothing worse than not being honest.
1: Exactly. And like you said, being seen is very, very powerful. I think I don't want to minimize that at all because feeling seen or when I felt seen, it hushed my self-doubts. And those self-doubts have the power to make you not believe your own story. Even if it's a traumatic story, it almost kind of makes you feel like delusional and makes you wonder like, wait, did I really actually go through that? But the more you hear other women sharing your same story, fortunately, I mean, unfortunately, unfortunately, because you get to see yourself in them, but you also hate the fact that they also went through the same thing as you, but it, it helps you. You to validate what you've gone through. Where can people find your newsletter? Is it on your website? Is there a link on your social media? Can you share any platforms that people can engage with you on as well? So I'm very active on Instagram,
0: at Alia Moro, A L Y A M O O R O. I'm on Twitter as well. My website, aliamoro.com, has links to all my work. Um, and you can buy The Greater Freedom, Life as a Middle Eastern Woman Outside the Stereotypes worldwide in bookstores, Amazon, wherever you buy your book. It's on Kindle as well and
1: audiobook narrated by me. Um, Oh, you have an audiobook. That's amazing. I can't wait to see what else you have in store for us. Um, But it's nice that you do have a newsletter that we can continue these conversations. I do want to host a giveaway for your book because I really sometimes when something really resonates with me, it's like I wish I was just a millionaire where I could just buy a million copies and just give it to everybody because it's like it was one of those books that it allowed me to see myself as well. And it's nice to continuously see yourself. You don't want to just see yourself one. And feel validated once It's nice to have These continuous check-ins But I can't thank you enough Alia. This conversation went way too quick I can't believe it's only It's an hour But it felt like it was 10 minutes But I feel like I can talk to you For hours Thank you so much Just for being who you are For just being so gracious And very very kind You're very humble You're very sweet So easy to talk to Very easy to share Like my feedback about your book My positive feedback So it's always nice And it's always refreshing To come across other women Who have shared Similar journeys with you and, And you can just chat about it It's a good feeling feeling. But thank you. Thank you so much. And honestly, I wish you the best of luck. And I hope this is the the last we hear of you. And I hope to have you again, inshallah, on the the podcast. Thank you, Alia.